Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Day Live podcast. I'm the host, Nina, and in this episode, I have a conversation with Rosie, who is a global public health student, and we'll talk about her thesis for her bachelor, which is about nutritional psychiatry. So this episode is actually quite special because it's the first live episode. So normally I um, record remotely, but now we're actually in the same room with Rosie. So it's really interesting <laughs> to do it like that. And yeah, I'm really happy to do this episode with Rosie because if you heard episode three, then you know that I'm also a public health student. So actually, I'm going to just explain quickly how I know Rosie. Rosie and I go to the same university and we're both global public health students so we have a lot of classes in common so yeah I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, Rosie do you want to introduce yourself in a few words? Sure thank you for having me first of all. Yeah so Nina and I met at uni I'm also a global public health student as she just explained. Um, I'm 20 and I am from France from the south of France and I'm currently writing my thesis on nutritional psychiatry so I will be talking about nutritional psychiatry, which is the topic of my thesis, and um, I hope you will be as interested as I am in this topic, because I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, I also think that's a very interesting topic. I also uh, am very interested in psychology and nutrition, so I don't know a lot about Rosie's topic, but I also take a lot of classes in that domain, so I'm really interested by it too. And for anyone who's interested, Rosie and I go to university in the Netherlands. So we study actually at Leiden University College. It's a liberal arts program. So it's not a global public health program. Students choose their majors and global public health is one of the majors. And it's actually a big thing that in your first year, you have to do a bit of everything and then you have to choose which major you want to do. So Rosie and I both went through this process. Could you tell us maybe a little bit more about how you decided to choose global public health and this entire process kind of of being in a first year and not really knowing what major you want to to do? Well, first of all, I think I decided to uh, study at the um, liberal arts college because I think the system in France was not broad enough for me and I really did not did not know what I wanted to do after high school and I knew that I was interested in health and the social part of health but I really had no clue of what I wanted to do. And in France, you can either go to university or private schools, uh, which are for business and engineering. And I did not necessarily want to do biology. So I started looking at other countries and what they were proposing. And I think liberal arts was the perfect choice for me because in the first year, as you just explained, you do so many different things that you actually get to know what you like and don't like. So I think that was really perfect for me. And yeah, in my first year, I started uni thinking I wanted to do sustainability, but sustainability always connected to nutrition in a way. And when I started taking some classes in sustainability, I quickly realized that I was, again, interested in the social parts. And I heard about global public health, which is kind of uh, not the um, most advertised major, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it was hard to to know what it was about. But I think actually taking one class, which was called Culture Migration and Health, that really sparked my interest for, for public health. So I think that was one of the reasons why I decided to go in this field. And um, yeah, I think the process of being a first year 
and finding out what you want is is tough but at the same time it's also very exciting to dedicate your studies to one specific thing yeah i think i talked about it in a previous episode but i also had this assumption that to be a public health student you kind of have to be good in like science Mm -hmm. because that seems obvious you know and when i was in high school i never knew that public health even existed Mm -hmm. and at LUC so the school we're at um, I took a class it was intro to epidemiology which is not it's not the most social health class Mm -hmm. ever but I had the opportunity to see that actually you don't need to be an expert in science and you can take a more social approach and that's what I also really liked about public health that um, you don't have to be an expert in biology or chemistry and you can very well take a more social approach. I think a lot of issues, people don't even realize that it's necessarily a public health issue, you know? Yeah. For example, I took a class and Rosie was also in the same class mm-hmm. where we, it's called Social Determinants of Health. And it shows that there are a lot of social aspects to health. For example, we had to um, help a neighborhood that was struggling with like poverty. And you might think, okay, what does poverty have to do with health? But actually, there are a lot of connections that you can make. So health is really more than people imagine, I think, a lot of times. Yeah, I think, the, um, as you just said, social determinants of health is a really good example of how so many things are connected and directly impacting health in a way. So as a public health student, you don't necessarily have to be an expert in biology to understand how health works but it's also creating policies to improve health in neighborhoods for example and yeah just improving general general life to have an impact on health i would say Mm -hmm. yeah so you can have a lot of different approaches Mm -hmm. but you what interests you the most is nutrition and psychology Yes, exactly. I think what is also nice about public health is that you definitely can choose if you want to bore a more biology side of things. And I took some biology classes. And I think nutrition is one of the most biology oriented class, I would say. Yeah, I started already being interested in nutrition before even entering uni. And then I took some classes. And then I started also being interested in psychology. And then I found a way to connect both uh, which is what I'm currently doing, which is very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what we're going to focus on today, because if we talk about public health, maybe it would take too long to really explain all the aspects of public mm-hmm. health. So now we're really focusing on nutrition and psychology. Do you want to tell us more how you found interest in both nutrition and psychology? So I think concerning nutrition, I think I was always interested in the way food was produced and the impact it had on people in general. But I never really thought about the idea that nutrition could actually impact your mental health in such a way. And I remember, I think, at the end of first year, I'm currently in my third year, by the way, and I saw this video, like just this random video on Facebook explaining the role of nutrition on mental health. And that really sparked my interest for it, I think. And this is how I started looking more into the impact of nutrition on mental health, but also um, using different nutritional treatments for uh, mental disorders. And yeah, I think this is the way I started being interested in that topic. And then obviously I decided I wanted to write my thesis on this topic. So I had to do more research, etc. Yeah, so I think there wasn't necessarily one day where I was like, I want to focus on this, but it was more um, my general interest for nutrition and realizing that nutrition can also help people. So that, I think, was the reason why I decided to write my thesis on this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me too, my interests are also yeah nutrition, psychology, and also 
gerontology. So gerontology is like um, how kind of looking at the social aspects of how people age. We had a class, for example, this year called Aging in Society that I thought was interesting. And I think it's the same for me. Like, it's not really a day I was like, okay, those are the topics that I like. Mm-hmm. It's kind of automatically you, like, start realizing that you like them, but you don't really think about it. It just yeah. kind of comes like that. I think for me, it was when I, when we had to write specific essays and you could choose your own topic, I always kind of had this idea and I always, like, related topics to my own interests and that's when I realized oh okay I see a pattern here and maybe I should dig this interest because it could be it could be interesting yeah and it's really interesting when you realize that you can link the two together mm-hmm. so for example you're linking nutrition with um psychology and well now my thesis because I'm also a third year I'm linking like aging so dementia with nutrition so it's kind of similar mm-hmm. And I think it's really nice when you can see that actually you can link things together. And that's what I like also about global public health is that if you have several interests, you can study them at the same time, I mm-hmm. think. And you realize that a lot of things are actually co- connected. So so at our university, the thesis is actually called a capstone. So if you hear us say capstone, that's what we are talking about. And so I would like to ask you, Rosie, how that idea came to you actually to do a thesis about both nutrition and psychology well nutritional psychology i'm gonna explain more later in the podcast um but i think obviously it's a very recent field and there's not a lot of research on it so your thesis is supposed to be something something new and it's it's supposed to add on to the to the current literature that is on the topic so i thought that was really interesting to dig more on that um and i think Personally, my idea of it was just finding more about this topic and how it actually works, because the issue with this topic is that it's in common knowledge when you see websites that are like, oh, you should eat this and you should eat this and it will improve your mental health. So I wanted to go deeper than this and actually understand like the biological aspect of it. So that was why I decided to work on that. And also, I think in public health in general, we talk so much about the burden of depression and um, how public health is always trying to find new solutions to improve the rates, but it's actually very slow and the rates are definitely increasing, especially in the current time that we're leaving. So I thought it was interesting to, even if it's a new field, to learn more about this topic and to somehow improve the general knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think nutrition can also be quite complex, whether you know about public health or you don't know mm-hmm. about public health. I think there are a lot of contradictions around the topic of food. So a lot of times, for example, you might think that a nutrient is good for you, but at the same time, it might have other negative effects. And like the whole topic about meat, for example, you know, how mm-hmm. do you know what what's good for you anymore? And I think it's, it's very complex sometimes, just nutrition. I feel like there's a lot of time, if you will find positive aspects in something, then you will also find negative aspects. Yeah, I agree. It's very, I think a lot of people have an opinion on this. So obviously opinions and true scientific facts kind of clash together in a sense. And then so many people want to talk about this. And obviously on the internet, you can find so many different opinions. So I think it's very hard to find like, 
what is actually good and what is actually bad and actually it obviously varies on on different people and one thing can have a good impact on someone and the same thing could have a bad impact on someone else yeah I think that was really interesting for me and that's why I wanted to to dig deeper and also one of the other reason I was interested in in this topic is obviously we know that currently depression is heavily treated with medication and the biomedical model which is the main model used in psychiatry is dominance and when you go to a psychiatrist the first thing you will talk about and most of the time you're prescribed with medication and obviously the role of my thesis is not to discredit medication because I think it's a really important aspect of healing and treatment but um, it's also important to get away from this model and to look at other possibilities that are actually out there to treat um, disorders that and that could avoid the dependency of antidepressants and all the negative sides of them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about the topic, but I feel like in general, a lot of people know that nutrition has um, a lot of positive effects on like your physical and maybe mental health. Mm-hmm. But it always sounds kind of like, I don't know if impossible is the world. Like you can't imagine that nutrition is actually going to cure anything, you know? What yeah. I mean? Like, for example, a lot of people will tell you, okay, just drink water and then your skin will be more, mm-hmm. I don't know, less, uh, <laughs> how do you say it, with less like imperfections. Mm-hmm. And it seems that a lot of times then people will tell you, oh, take this nutrient and then suddenly your body will change and you will see big changes. And it's true that when you hear it like that, it kind of sounds like, okay, but how can that actually like make such a big difference? I think it sounds kind of like unrealistic to mm-hmm. maybe a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so it's interesting to talk about about this topic. Do you want to then start talking more about your thesis? And of course, now you're like still at the beginning, like Mm -hmm. you haven't written your whole thesis yet. But what are the patterns that you see in terms of like theories around uh, this topic of nutrition and depression? Um, So my thesis will be a systematic review. So a systematic review is a review of all the literature that has been written on this topic. So I'm going to look at different studies that have looked at different treatments and then summarize all of these results and make a conclusion out of all of these studies. I think, so the main structure of my study is I'm talking about different theories that led to the creation of nutritional psychiatry or discovery, more to say. And so these different theories... Um, led to different treatments and this is the reasoning why I decided to look at this topic so I chose two different theories and moving on from that I I will be looking at those treatments based on this theory so that's my theoretical arguments okay so just to specify quickly because I don't think we've actually said it but you're specifically looking at depression right or are you looking at just psychiatry in general yeah i'm specifically looking at depression and more specifically even depressive symptoms which kind of makes this research less intense and um in the sense that it doesn't say oh this treatment can cure depression but more alleviate symptoms which could be for example used at the same time as antidepressant for example and both could be working together to uh, cure depression but I think for now the first step is looking at the alleviation of treatment which is easier to to explain and uh, yeah okay so let's try to go step by step first Rosie will talk about the evolution of depression so how 
um, depression was kind of defined throughout the years. And then she will explain to us what the two theories she just mentioned are. Yes, so actually it's quite interesting because depression was actually coined for the first time as depressive reaction in 1952, which is also the first publication of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And at that time, as you can see in the name depressive reaction, depression was understood as the reaction from a, spe a specific events. So this could be grief, this could be the, the loss of love, or this could be loss of job. And the specific events uh, would trigger a specific response, and this response will be categorized as depression in those days. And so the fact that people were focusing on specific events creating this response did not help with the evolution of treatment because um, actually the field of psychiatry at that point really struggled to affirm itself in the general scientific field because there were no really specific criteria to diagnose it and people didn't really understand. So it was just only related to an event. So I think that in the very beginning, it was hard to... Um, even have research on treatments or research on actually how the disorder works because people really did not understand the reason why people were focusing on depression so much because it was just yeah just a reaction to something and people mm -hmm. would just think it would pass after after some time so people kind of saw it as like in quotation like normal as in okay you you lost someone so you're going to be depressed and whatever we're not going to treat that because everybody will go through this kind of i think the idea of also maladaptive response was uh, actually considered so it was the idea that like a specific event that everyone can go through in general had a specific reaction on you but it meant obviously it was it was kind of pointing your finger at people and being like you are not responding well to this event so you're not normal and so you are categorized as this type of people who have maladaptive responses to mm -hmm. sadness okay so that was how it was seen before and in terms of the evolution to like now <laughs> the present how could you explain that i think one of the main revolution was finding proper criteria and actually being able to diagnose depression as different from just sadness. And that was with the DSM-3. So there's different edition of the DSM. The first one I just talked about, and this was with the um, DSM number three. And at this moment, uh, they actually found different symptoms. And if you presented the symptoms, it was established that you had depression and then you would be able to be treated for this. And because of the evolution of the criteria, the biomedical model, which is one of the most important framework that people use to define criteria and to define symptoms, um, was established as the, um, as the main model. And this model actually is currently also dominant because it's basically the idea that like, a chemical imbalance in your brain will have an effect on your mood and on your behavior. And so this chemical imbalance can be treated in different ways, but the root of depression is caused by a biological dysfunction in your body, basically. That really marks the field of psychiatry because at this point, patients could actually be understood and treated differently 
and actually not blame for their sickness, but actually treat it as normal patients in the sense that it was a disorder that was in their body, just that is the same as, for example, a cold. So they were treated in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think like you talked about a lot of things right now, but you mentioned that one of the big changes that now um depression is not seen only as sadness but as like an actual disorder but i think like even now in the present day it's still not very clear or it's still used a lot of time the term to just describe sadness i think like in the in the everyday life you can have a lot of people that would say oh i'm depressed but sometimes it kind of loses meaning like we don't really know what it means So it still has that kind of, I think, unclarity. Maybe in the field of psychiatry, it's more, mm-hmm. you know, there's like a definition. But I mean, in everyday life, it's sometimes used for like different situations and the definition likes maybe clarity, I think. Yeah, I agree, because I think there is still a big misconception about what depression actually is. And obviously, because mental health is such a taboo, people don't necessarily want to understand what it actually entails. And it's uh, depressed people are actually very alienated, actually, in society. So it's very hard to actually understand what it truly means to be depressed. And yeah, people use it around a lot when it actually doesn't necessarily mean what the disorder is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for explaining the evolution of depression. I think it's a very interesting topic. Now, could you tell us maybe a little bit more about what about the role of nutrition? When was nutrition added to the picture? Um, and how did it evolve also through time? Well, I think nutrition was always important. Uh And the role of nutrition was always seen as something critical in health in general, but not necessarily mental health. So, for example, gut health is definitely not a recent breakthrough, but research and actually medical science looking at the importance of nutrition is pretty recent. So gut health is actually one of the theory I'm looking at, and it's the microbiota theory, to be more precise. So basically, to make it simple, because it's a very... very difficult topic I would say. So your gut is composed of many different microorganisms that help you with digestion, that help you with health in general, but also that impact your behavior and your mood. So we all share the same base of microbes when we were born and then the quantity but also the type of microbe that will be contained in your gut is influenced by your environment that the, by the food that you eat if you if you smoke if you drink all the things that are in your environment and those microbes are actually essential because as i said they influence your digestion and your health so you have good microbes and bad microbes to make it easier they're um continuously fighting against each other to um to allow the host to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So not only they participate uh, in digestion, but also in hormone production and immune response, brain development. um, And they just benefit the host to a big extent, I would say. And I think one thing to remember is that the diversity of species in your gut is what impacts your health and what allow you to be healthy. And that's where nutrition comes And that's where nutrition plays a role because 
I think you've probably heard the sentence, but you are what you eat. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very relevant here because obviously the food that you ingest will have an impact on the diversity of the guts, of the microbes in your gut. And one thing that was um, quite recently discovered was the relationship between what is happening in your gut and your brain. So this is called the gut-brain axis. And so the gut-brain axis is actually the theory behind the influence of nutrition on the brain because the gut-brain axis is um, a communication system between the gut functions and the nervous system. And so that is where the bacteria will influence your brain. And so because of this relationship, when there is a disturbance um, in your gut, a disturbance in your brain will occur. And so that is one of the theory that explains uh, how depression is or can be triggered. Okay, thank you, Rosie. I think that was very interesting and you explained well the biological side of it. So now we know a bit more about the theory, but people listening to this episode might wonder, okay, so what do I actually have to do to have a healthy gut? What would be your answer to that? Okay, so obviously I'm not a doctor. I'm just a public health student, so I can't really give advice. But generally to have good gut health what is pretty common in the literature is to avoid processed foods and foods that are high in sugar high in fat everything you can think of that is very processed and high in fat and sugar but one of the main treatment i'm going to look at to improve gut health is probiotics so probiotics are live bacteria that are found in all fermented foods you can think of so yogurt sourdough kimchi Uh, apple cider vinegar, pickled foods, all of this. And so these are considered good bacteria to improve gut health um, because they actually favor the diversity of microbes in your guts. Um, And this actually has been observed in animals more than humans. Um, But as I said, it's a very recent field and there's more and more research on the impact of probiotics. And what we know now is that it actually has antidepressant and anxiolytic properties. Um, So um, there is some ground on which we can work on to to know if it actually has an impact on, on mental health. Okay, yeah, I think it's important to say that it's still like a field that's being researched so we don't have like exact conclusions yeah exactly mm-hmm. and this is one of the main issue i think with the fact that it's a very recent field is that there are not a lot of human studies and when they are human studies they're only observational so it's not uh, changing someone's diet but it's more observing people that are doing it themselves mm-hmm. so there is actually an enormous need for research on this topic with actually randomized controlled trials to actually look at the impact and have causal relationships, or it will also be a way to know if it actually doesn't work, but at least improving the knowledge we have on this topic, I think is super important because there's a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. So now I don't know if it fits maybe too specifics, but you were explaining earlier in this episode that you're looking more at the symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. Do you know if to... Do you know if this theory is focusing more on improving your gut health like before mm-hmm. you might uh, be diagnosed with depression or is it something to do while you are um, experiencing depression, if that makes sense? 
So I think the current studies um, are looking at patients that already have depression, but this is also for the sake of like research being easier because obviously prevention mm-hmm. is very hard to measure. Um, yeah, because you don't know in advance if someone is going to have depression. Yeah. You can't be like, okay, you, I'm going to observe you because you will exactly. have depression. Mm-hmm. So I think for now, even though prevention will actually be a great tool, because um, prevention in general is like a very important part of public health, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for now they're focusing more on people who already have it to know um, if there are some causal relationship because obviously it's harder to, as you said, to mm-hmm. look at people who might develop depression because we don't know. Yeah, yeah, true. Okay. And that was the first theory that you were looking at? You mentioned that you were looking at two theories for your thesis. Uh, Do you want to briefly explain what the second one is? So the second theory I'm going to talk about in my thesis is the inflammation theory, which is actually somehow related to gut health. And it has been recently explored in the literature because it was observed that people, patients with depression, sorry, presented higher levels of inflammation uh, than the rest of the population, actually. Um, and because of this, um, we started looking more at the reason why they had those higher levels. And actually, the theory behind that is that inflammation triggers a certain behavior amongst sick patients. So I think that's quite interesting because they had this example that really, I think, explains it very well. So when someone is sick, you would often have a specific behavior where you will be in bed, not really eat a lot, not necessarily want to have a good hygiene. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of this behavior that is linked to sickness, which is called the sickness behavior. Researchers started looking at this specific behavior and linked it to depression in the sense that when your body is in a state of infection or inflammation, the sickness behavior is triggered. So actually, they theorize on the idea that depression could also be triggered by not a specific sickness like a cold or the flu or whatever but by an inf- an infection and inflammation that is actually not detected but the symptoms of the behavior are seen but not the actual inflammation and i think that's a very nice way of describing it because it's kind of easy to understand and I never actually thought about this before but the sickness behavior idea makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah it makes me think of well now we're talking specifically about nutrition and inflammation but for example a lot of people might show symptoms of depression I don't want to use wrong terms Mm -hmm. um, when they leave for example, in cold areas or dark mm-hmm. areas where there's not a lot of sun, you mm-hmm. know, stuff like that. Like, it makes me think of this, that actually your um, environment also yeah, plays a role. Or then how you behave might actually then cause the depression. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think mainly it's the idea of inflammation that is not detected, right? And so we focus more on the symptoms and on the idea of, like, this behavior when actually... It could maybe be treated by treating the infection rather than the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I think, once again, there's a lot of hope in this theory. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a similar question to the one I asked for the first theory. Is basically, what is the treatment? So now that we know that, okay, what do we do to solve the issue? Well, actually, it's once again pretty similar because the theories are related in the sense that it's caused by uh, an inflammation or 
um, an infection with bad bacteria, I would say. Um, but yeah, actually inflammation is um, highly influenced by diets and dietary inflammation is one of the main cause of uh, inflammation in the body. And this is mainly caused once again by um, consumption of trans fats and refined starches, processed food, red meat. So all of the food that is normally associated with non-communicable diseases also have an impact on mental disorders. And so one way of treating the inflammation is using what is um, most commonly called protective food. So these are nutrients like fibrous foods, so vegetables, whole grain, nuts, good oils. And all of these are part of the Mediterranean diet, which is why the Mediterranean diet is one of the treatment I will be looking at, because it contains all of these um, protective treatments, protective nutrients, sorry, that could help with inflammation. Omega-3 is the main nutrient that is uh, part of the Mediterranean diet. And we actually do not produce omega-3, even though it's crucial for our functioning. So all the omega-3 that we ingest is actually the only source that we of omega-3 that we have and the Mediterranean diet is related to omega-3 in the sense that uh, it is composed of um, of fish, whole grains, vegetables, nuts um, and vegetable oils that do contain omega-3. So omega-3 supplementation is one of the treatments and the the Mediterranean diet is based on the same idea and the same theory, but it's just a different way of administrating treatment. So it's a complete change of diet. So obviously it has a different impact on on an individual than just taking some pills in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert, but just by hearing you say that, I think also what might play a role maybe is that there's a big difference between like taking your pill and I don't know, doing a barbecue and cooking salmon, I don't know, you know, like you have also the pleasure of cooking and eating good food and maybe sharing it with like family or friends. So, um, I mean, that's not really what we're talking about today, but I guess there's also that aspect of nutrition of like how you consume food that could play a role. Yeah, of course. I think it's definitely worth mentioning it because it's also part of your journey and like your tr- like your treatment, you know? So the idea of like you're an actor in your own healing journey and you're actually taking part of it and you're cooking for yourself and you're doing all of these steps to feel better so I think that's generally important and it has an impact on on the treatment yeah I would imagine also if you're like forced if you feel forced to have a certain type of uh, nutrition then that also maybe doesn't work because you need to have I guess um you need to be motivated to follow it and like enjoy it to a certain extent. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're kind of like, it kind of maybe lose it. I don't know if it loses purpose because then it might still have good impacts on like your gut or your inflammation. But yeah, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I definitely think there's two sides to it because in one, as we just said, it could be, it could be good for some people to be actors in their own treatment. But at the same time, it's also a big burden for people who already present depressive symptoms to have to follow a certain diet and mm-hmm. cook and just be active in general and could be a barrier to to healing. So I think it goes both way. And I think that's why all treatments are not specifically adapted to everyone. But I think certain individuals are more adapted to certain types of treatments. Even though nutrition 
seems promising and I think it's a great idea to also focus on other options than maybe just medicine. I feel like if you have depression, it might seem a bit easy to say like, okay, just change your diet, you know, mm-hmm. because you might not be in a, yeah, it might seem like an easy thing to say, but like harder thing to to do because then that's also a change of lifestyle that you have to yeah of course into. yeah of course it's a very big step and that's why also maybe i should have mentioned this earlier but um nutritional psychiatry is aimed at milder forms of depression or high functioning depression i would say where the patient is actually able to function correctly but has those symptoms of depression and i think yeah in in more severe forms i don't necessarily think it's could work as much as in other forms because there is this burden and there is this idea of just being active which uh, for some people is just not possible um so once again i think all different treatments are adapted to certain people and my research is not aimed at saying this um this is what you need to do and there is no other solution but more finding different ways that could work for certain people but also could not work for certain people and keeping in mind that this is only trying to help people and not necessarily treat them. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, indeed. I think it's important to be clear, like you were, and explain that research still needs to be done and that it's not a general answer that would apply to, to everyone. But I think it's a very interesting topic and I'm happy that I learned more about it. Now, just to finish this episode, tell us, of course, you're not done with your thesis but what you want to do after because now you're at the end of your bachelor do you have any plans of course like you can't know in advance exactly what you're going to do but how do you want to continue with this research and do you have ideas of masters for example that you would like to do I think concerning my thesis for now the main goal is to actually do the research and find my results and depending on this um, have a conclusion on what I've just talked about And I think what I struggle with with masters, as we already talked about, is that nutrition is a very biology-orientated field, which is kind of an issue for me because obviously, even though I have a Bachelor of Science, I don't have a Bachelor in Biology. I have a Bachelor in Global Public Health. So I think from what I've looked at, it's, it's, it's actually a bit hard to focus on nutrition or mental health if you don't have a bachelor in biology or a bachelor in psychology. So I'm still struggling with that, but I hope to find the perfect masters for me. I'm also not necessarily stuck on this idea. I'm also interested in a lot of different things in public health concerning policy. Mm-hmm. Nutrition and policy making is also, I think, a great field um, to work in and that not, doesn't necessarily require a lot of um, a lot of biology background, so that would be nice, I think. But for next year, I'm going to focus on finding an internship to actually know what I like and don't like once again, <laughs> just as I did in my first year of uni, and then find uh, find the perfect master. I hope. Okay, great. Well, I think it's already super nice that you know what you're interested in. You know, because a lot of people don't really know what topics are the most interesting for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's already a, a great thing. And maybe, who knows, when you're done with your thesis, we can do a little update to tell <laughs> people what are the results. I think that would be interesting. I thank you very much for coming on this podcast. It was a very interesting conversation. And I'm sure that people learned a lot from it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I hope people listening to this will actually know more and maybe do their own little research on, on this topic. 
And if you want to know more about Rosie or contact her to know more about her thesis, um, here is her Instagram. So my Instagram is Frizui, which is F-R-I-Z-O-U-I-L-L-E-S, I believe. Okay, well, thank you very much once again. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode and depending on the platform on which you are listening to this podcast you can either subscribe on Spotify or you can also leave a review on our podcast and of course you can follow the Instagram page of the Life They Live podcast which is the Life They Live underscore podcast and there you can send me any feedback you have or recommendations. See you next time.